Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Ontario government dropped its first mini-budget. What's in it? How will it affect low-income workers? We'll talk about that. Also, a police investigation is underway at St. Michael's College School in Toronto after an alleged sexual assault which led to 10 students being suspended or expelled. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government released its uh, first mini-budget, uh, their economic statement, yesterday. And, uh, well, they said they had to do some cutting uh, because of the financial situation. And uh, cuts they did, although, interestingly enough, there seems to be an almost mixed bag of reaction to this now. Some people say they didn't go far enough. Others very concerned about where some of those cuts were. Joining us to talk about this is Vic Fidelli, who is the finance minister for the Ontario government, who delivered uh, the economic statement yesterday. Vic, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about where you were targeting yesterday, Vic. Uh, we talked about, the, the, I think everybody understands the, the financial situation that we're in here in the province of Ontario. But uh, some of the greatest concern we've heard, and I know you have over the last 24 hours or so, has been about uh, scrapping the Office of the Ontario Child Advocate and Environmental Commissioners. Uh, explain to us exactly what the rationale is there. Well, it's not really scrapped. It's be, uh, all of the investigative activities will be consolidated. It's being consolidated under the Auditor General and the Provincial Ombudsman. These, you know, we're going to be strengthening those offices. We're going to be expanding them, giving them more powers, a stronger mandate, and actually taking the politics out of it by taking it away from cabinet and the government out of the decision-making around the appointment of those offices and, and putting it instead now right into the legislature. So, you know, we look at it, uh, you can, there's still going to be audits, there's still going to be complaints filed, still going to be answers given, um, and no accountability is being removed. So it's, uh, I, you know, it's more in the way of how, how people are wording it than, uh, than anything. Well, that's what I was saying. When you start looking at that, some of the coverage uh, from the, the speech yesterday, of course, uh, it's in the eye of the beholder, obviously. But the concern here is obviously the Child's Advocate Office is a, is a proactive uh, situation. The ombudsman basically works off uh, of complaints. In other words, they're reactive to this. How do you rationalize that, and how do you juxtapose these two? Yeah, well, there's not a single oversight uh, provision that's going to be lost with these changes. In fact, they're going to be strengthened. Most people know who the Auditor General, uh, know to go to an Auditor General, or know to go to an Ombudsman. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 those transfer of roles uh, is really what it's all about, but there's, there's no oversight lost whatsoever. Tax cuts, let's talk about those. Uh, you promised us that there were going to be tax cuts. You said there were going to be tax cuts for low-income earners, and you've delivered on that. Uh, but when you do the math on this, it doesn't work out to as much of a saving as, uh, as they would have had, actually, if you had gone ahead with the minimum wage increase that was scheduled for this year. Yeah, what we saw was, uh, especially when all three parties did roundtables right across the province before the first 22% increase in minimum wage, we were told by businesses that people are going to lose their jobs, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, and now we know that if we go from 14 to 15, more tens of thousands, more people will lose their jobs. And so this way, we're making sure that we're making Ontario open for business, uh, looking for ways to create higher-paying jobs for them. And in the meantime, we're providing tax relief for low-income and minimum-wage earners. This is the most one of the most generous Ontario tax cuts for low-income workers in an entire generation. Uh, this is going to benefit 1.1 million people across the province. I've heard the same stories, though, Vic, and we had the chambers on of, of Ontario, Hamilton Chamber, everybody else during the discussion uh, before that legislation was passed by the previous government. 
but then I, I, I'm looking at the reports that I've seen over the last couple of months that said there was actually a bump in, in employment here and that people were actually hiring. I don't, I don't see the stories about people losing their jobs. Well, go to StatsCan. That's where you'll get your actual facts. And we see that in the 10 months since the minimum wage went up, permanently lost 31,000 part-time jobs in the province of Ontario. That's from StatsCan. That's where you are. I mean, the other material, every month we change. We, we, we gain some, we lose some. You know, January we lost 50,000. This summer we lost 81,000 jobs in one month. They come and they go. Our population is also increasing, so you would expect that we're going to have a greater net number, but 31,000 part-time jobs were lost in 10 months due to this. With the uh, province in the financial straits they are right now, some people are questioning why you also included a tax uh, uh, break for the highest uh, income bracket as well. Yeah, look, when you uh, when you uh, um, give this kind of a tax uh, uh, surcharge, we want to see that uh, during the election campaign, we were very clear that we're not going to implement the former government, government's tax increases. So uh, this is for the low-income earners all across the board, uh, the tax increases that were scheduled on January 1 are not going to happen. People need relief, uh, and that's why we're targeting especially 1.1 million uh, of the uh, low-income and minimum wage workers. When we look at numbers like this, Vic, and, and I know that obviously there's going to be arguments from the opposition parties on this, but uh, it comes down to bookkeeping. And I know that uh, that the Auditor General had a real problem with the previous government with the way they were uh well, I guess actually which column they were going to put in uh, the, the pension assets. Uh, you've decided to go with the Auditor General's uh, suggestion that those are not included as government assets. Uh, but the, it was interesting, though, the way that report was written, because it said for the time being. In other words, there might be a change in there. Are you still with this on, are there discussions ongoing right now with the Auditor General about that? Well, there haven't been any, but what it said was, uh, uh, what we said was we accept the Commission's report and we accept the Auditor General. Uh, look, the, uh, she told us uh, before the last election, she, the Auditor General said the government's books, and this is her word, government's books are bogus. Uh, you, you know, to be able to take over a $150 billion corporation and know that your books were bogus, that is a very serious uh, issue and a very daunting task to be able to work to correct that. And that's our job now. And so in the first uh, few months that we've been in office, we've uh, saved $3.2 billion in efficiencies, and we've returned $2.7 billion back to the pockets of the people in Ontario. That's what we were elected to do. That's what we said we are going to do, and that's what we're doing. And on top of it all, we still managed to reduce the deficit from $15 billion from the Liberals down to $14.5 billion. And now, of course, uh, Monday morning, we start working on Budget 2019. Well, let's talk about that. Are there any uh, sacred cows, any untouchables as you, as you go through the books for looking for that, that budget that's going to be coming in the spring? You know, I've said many times, it's not just a financial issue. It's a moral obligation. We've got to uh, bring balance to the deficit. Um, this is a, what we call a structural deficit. That, that's a real amount of money that's we, that we spend more than we take in every year. This is built in now for the next years. This isn't, uh, uh, you know, this isn't uh, for some uh, planned uh, um, uh, bonuses that the Liberals were talking about. Th- those, those are uh, the future programs. We're, in, we're, we're deep in the future. That's six point seven billion dollars. The Liberals said was the deficit. That's for real. That's for doctors, 
the teachers. This is the everyday bills that we're paying with that money. So th- this is a real a real deficit that we've got to challenge, and and there will be there will be uh, you know uh, equally shared pain amongst the people of Ontario. The, 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 as Premier Ford said, that the, the party with the taxpayers' money is over. We've got to we've got to start uh, uh, focusing, and everything we do is for the people. Ontario Finance Minister Vic Vidali, a busy day for you, Vic. I really appreciate you taking some time for us today. Thanks so much. All good, though. Take care now. Uh, that's uh, the uh, that's uh, the line, obviously, from the government and their rationalization for what they announced yesterday. There's uh, still a great deal of consternation in some circles, and we're going to hear from some of those people uh, over the next part of uh, the program here, including uh, uh, Sandy Shaw, who is the finance critic for the uh, Ontario NDP party, of course, the uh, party of opposition at Queen's Park. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good. Well, you've had time to digest some of the things that Mr. Fidelli talked about. Uh, give me your uh, read on what you saw and what you heard yesterday. Well, I, I want to pick up where uh, the minister keeps talking about, you know, a moral imperative. And you know that I actually think that if you look at a budget, or is, this is a pre-budget as a theological document, you see what a government values, and more importantly, you see what they don't value. And what we see in, in this uh, economic statement is that this government doesn't seem to value, uh, you know, the most marginalized people in our communities, given the way that they've taken... billion of cuts. I mean, the ministry keeps calling them efficiencies. This is $3.2 billion of cuts. They're not efficiencies. Well, again, he's getting into the terminology of it, and uh, when you start looking at some of these numbers, and we've talked about this in the past, uh, a lot of the deficit numbers that he's talking about and some of the savings numbers have really just uh, their decision not to enact a a number of the programs that the the previous government had promised to do. So, I mean, there was never really any money spent there. Well, well, in fact, that's not the case. I mean, if you look at the budget, they're using the commissioner's uh, baseline, given the, the way that they're presenting the fall economic statement. And given that, there's a million dollars in cuts uh, from the children using social services. And that is real money that is being cut from the most marginalized people in our, in our communities, especially if you think about Hamilton and our struggle with, with child poverty, essentially. I mean, that is a signal to us that this government is looking at uh, balancing the budget or bringing us back to balance. But how are they doing it? I mean, they're doing it in the areas uh, where, uh, in my opinion and the opinion of my party, is the wrong way to do it. I mean, you can't continue to ask people to tighten their belts as Doug Ford has, when they've already tightened their belts uh, so uh, so stringently. I mean, people are struggling, and this uh, this, pre- uh, this economic statement doesn't signal any relief for the people in our communities that need it the most. They're also talking yesterday, uh, Mr. Fidelli was anyway, about business tax competitiveness, uh, which has always been a sore point. I understand what's going on in the states and, and the Donald Trump tax cuts, etc., but the reality here is that Ontario already has some of the lowest business taxes in the province, lowering them even further. Uh, I'm not so sure it's going to actually give us much of a competitive advantage, but it is going to reduce uh, the, the revenue that's coming into the government, obviously. Uh, absolutely. And I think if you look at, if you really take a look at uh, this uh, economic statement, what is it Tom Waits said? You know, the, the, big, the, the big print giveth and the small print taketh away. So you can look at their top lines. But if you drill down into it, what you're seeing is a government that's actually spending in areas that they care about and taking money away from the things that uh, other people care about. And so absolutely, when it comes to their ideology, I guess, which is the trickle-down theory, that if, you know, if you uh, reduce taxes on large corporations, if you exempt them, for example, uh, from the cap-and-trade, so now they're exempt from contributing to the climate change. 
if you look at that, you're seeing that this is a government that's actually spending money on things that they care about and not on the things that other people care about. And, you know, sorry to get specifically to the, your question about, you know, our tax competitiveness, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at, uh, we have one of the lowest combined corporate tax rates and small business tax rates in, in the country. And it's in line, even given the Trump's uh, recent tax uh, cuts, it's in line with our biggest competitors, which would be, you know, Michigan and New York, for example. So this theory uh, is really shown to not be uh, the, the, the most effective way to help the lowest income people in our community or hardworking, you know, average uh, Ontarians. Mr. Fidelli said, I know you were listening just a couple of minutes ago, Sandy, he suggested that, uh, that everybody's going to have to share in the pain here. And, and he talked about the tax breaks for low-income earners. Uh, and at the same time, I, I asked him, obviously, why not you know, reinstate the, the minimum wage increase that was coming or the, the fair wage policy? And, and, of course, the government's decided to turn their back on both of those policies. But while they're doing that to low-income earners, there's also uh, in this budget a tax break for the highest tax bracket. It amounts to about $275 million a year. Uh, if we're in financial straits, can we really afford to do that to people that really probably don't even need that help? Well, it, it, that's, uh, that's the billion-dollar question, let's say. That's exactly the point. And if you actually look at the numbers, they're spending, uh, they're, they're, they're spending or you know, skewing revenue for the highest income earners in this province twice as much as they're giving for this low-income tax break. So the low-income tax break, you know, will, will, um, theoretically is going to benefit low-income people, but uh, so many of those people earn so little that they already don't pay tax. So this, in fact, is not uh, a gift at all to low-income um, earners in the province. And as you said, had they uh, continued to enact the, 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 some of the provisions that the Liberals had put in place, including the, uh, the promised increase in the minimum wage, there's rock-solid evidence that shows that low-income earners would be way better off with that dollar increase in minimum wage than they are with this, uh, this tax cut they're talking about. But in fact, this tax cut... Um, is, is, you know, they're spending twice as much as they are on the highest income earners to provide them a tax break. I asked him about the Ontario Child Advocate Office, uh, which uh, he says they're not scrapping. He says it's just simply being rolled into the Ombudsman's Office, uh, which I, I still think is somewhat contrary uh, to the role of the of the Ombudsman or, and, and for the Child Advocate, for that matter. Uh, because as we say, the Child Advocate is an analyst who will look at government policies and, and do their studying on their own. The Ombudsman works basically on a complaint basis. So in other words, by the time they would be looking after something that could be harmful to children vis-a-vis -vis policy or anything else, the damage has already been done. What's your comfort level with, with their explanation for what they're doing? I'm not comfortable with it at all. In fact, I'm incensed by this. I mean, you know, I'm a new MPP, and I'm just learning, and I sit in the House, and I would just tell you that what I see is a government that talks a good game about transparency and accountability, but what they, if you look at their actions, it doesn't speak to that at all. And when you are muting or when you are trying to get rid of really important watchdogs, these are the these are the offices, the independent offices that hold the government to account. You're not really, really committed to transparency and accountability. And and as I said earlier, you know, if we're talking about a uh, moral imperative, what could be more more um, what could be more important to us than to ensure that the most vulnerable people in our community, which are children in care, which is our you know our indigenous youth, people that are young people that have no other place to go. What could be more important than ensuring that they continue to have access to an, uh, to, uh, to an outlet 
it is being denied them by this government. Sandy Shaw, finance critic uh, for the Ontario NDP, responding to the economic statement from yesterday. Sandy, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Continuing with our coverage of the uh, provincial government's economic statement from yesterday, mini-budget as it were, uh, we've heard from the finance minister, Vic Fideli, and uh, Sandy Shaw, who is the uh, opposition uh, finance critic, of course, for the NDP. I want to bring Tom Cooper into the conversation. Tom, of course, director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, who has been intimately involved in a lot of the discussions about uh, what's been going on uh, vis-a-vis low income and uh, affordability, uh, apartments, a number of things like this. That's all covered in this type. First of all, thanks for coming in, Tom. Appreciate hey, it. Hey, good to see you on this snowy day, Bill. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the numbers that uh, the finance minister was uh, talking around to us just a few minutes ago. Uh, vis-a-vis jobs, vis-a-vis minimum wage, for instance. Let's go out, Let's go down that road, because uh, there seems to be conflicting evidence here as to why the government did what they did. He quoted some numbers uh, that suggested that we're losing jobs. Uh, some of those, by the way, are part-time summer jobs, and I yep. guess I, I guess technically you can count those, but uh, <laughs> it, it sounds as if they're, they're doing the exact same thing that they accuse the Liberals of doing, is, uh, is actually, uh, you know, massaging the numbers to suit their own purpose. It certainly seems that way, and all the numbers I've heard uh, from Stats Canada indicate that uh, employment is, is actually improving since the increase to the $14 minimum wage came into effect uh, in January. There was one or two months where, where there was a little bit of a fallback. But by and large, uh, small businesses are, are doing very well. And there's a simple reason for it. It's because when their employees are earning more, that's money that's being spent in the community on, on local goods and services. And it's helping to drive economic growth. It's helping to create even more jobs. And so it's it's almost like an infusion in the local economy because there's more money to spend from some of the lowest income workers who aren't putting it away, aren't putting it in the bank, aren't putting it in Swiss bank accounts. They're they're spending it. They're spending it on things they need, on the essentials, on rent, on food, on on other things, uh, making sure their their kids have uh, have skates so they can uh, join uh, join the local hockey team. You know, it's. This is money that is well spent uh, when governments increase wages for the lowest income workers. Well, I'm, you know that ship has sailed. Sadly, I mean, they, you know, they're not going to give the minimum wage increase that uh, the other government had promised. We we all know that by now. Instead, they've offered tax uh, breaks uh, for these uh, low income earners, less than thirty thousand dollars. My understanding, by the way, is an awful lot of those people already don't pay taxes anyway. That's true, I, and my understanding is that maybe uh, a third of the uh, the lowest income workers uh, will actually see the benefit from from these tax breaks. Um, and and if you actually look at the numbers, if you're to increase uh, minimum wage, uh, low wage workers would be getting an, an, an additional $2,000 every single year uh, from an increase from 14 to $15 an hour. Um, with this uh, with this tax break, it's maybe in the range of $600, $650. So certainly nowhere near as, as much. And we know, you know, many people don't file taxes um, because they don't think... Uh, you know, they don't think there's any benefit to them. So there's always that as well. Well, yeah, obviously they're not going to accrue any of the, uh, the, the desired uh, you know, benefit from this sort of thing if they don't file the taxes. Uh, the programs are gone. Uh, this seems to be the way that they're going right now. And, and, and I know that there was some concern before this economic statement, Tom, that, that well, these government cuts that the, the, government, the Ford government was promising were going to be on the backs of the most vulnerable. Uh, and it's a case to be made for that after we've looked at some of these numbers. I mean, the, the Children's Advocate's Office, uh, he says, is being moved over to Ombudsman and everything's going to be just fine. 
Uh, I guess, you know, we'll take him at his word this morning, but there's a lot of concern as I talk to people uh, over the last 24 hours about this, about the impact that's going to have. Yeah, and I'm certainly not an expert in that area, but my understanding is it's a difference between being proactive and being reactive. And and the ombudsman really reacts to complaints. And, and so if people are feel empowered enough uh, to put forward a complaint, then um, then the ombudsman will will certainly look look out for that. Um, well, I, the, the, yeah, there's a, th- a pattern though, because at the same time they did this with the child advocate office, uh, they've also eliminated the position of environmental commissioner, uh, which kind of lends you down the road to suggest that maybe they want to get rid of people that have go. This is oversight. This is what these these two bodies were for government oversight, and apparently they don't want that. Yeah, and we've, we've heard this song before as well in the past, right? 20 years ago, there were a number of cuts to, to critical government services, and, and we all know, we can those of us old enough anyway can certainly remember the tragedy of Walkerton. Um, we certainly know there are costs associated with cutting back services, and, and we have to be very, very careful um, in, ensure, in terms of ensuring the most vulnerable members of our communities, of our society, are are protected, and and that includes the environment as well. Because, you know, uh, our our planet is on the precipice right now, and if if we listen to the evidence, uh, we we don't have a whole lot of time to make some pretty critical decisions about how we're going to remedy things. There was another element uh, on a file that you've been working on for quite some time, and uh, and it's about rent. It's about affordable housing. Uh, one of the things that Mr. Fidelli announced yesterday, of course, was removing some of the rent controls that have been in place for quite some time. Uh, it was all on the premise that that's going to uh, generate more building of, of rental units, uh, that more apartment buildings are going to be constructed right now. Uh, I've heard that song before. Mm-hmm. The, the previous governments have tried this with very little success. Yeah, and there hasn't been very many affordable rental multi-residential buildings uh, built in Canada really over the last 30 years. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s, that's when we saw a uh, really increase in, in building of new affordable multi-residential units. Uh, and, and there was a simple reason for that. It's because governments invested in housing. And back in 1996, the federal government decided to wash their hands of the national housing strategy and and downloaded a lot of a lot of those responsibilities to other levels of government, including the municipality. Um, I, I think if we're going to get realistic about ensuring that people uh, have a place to live or have a safe, affordable, accessible house, have and, and I believe people have a right to housing. Uh, I believe it. It is something that we here in Canada need to ensure that people are are protected, certainly from the elements, but have a stable foundation in their lives that that is a, a, an affordable house or affordable a rental apartment. And un- unfortunately, I don't see cutting back on rent controls as a way to get there. It's not going to happen. But if if their goal here, as they said yesterday, is is to is to give the the private sector. Uh, some incentives, and, and I guess that's the thing, it's going to be generating income, but I mean, that's not the kind of incentives the private sector said they wanted in the first place. But are they basically saying then it's going to be up to the private sector to increase the, the stock of affordable housing? Uh, uh, like, where was their announcement yesterday that they were going to be involved in this? Where yeah, was their commitment I didn't, to it? I didn't hear any of that, Bill, and and we know it, unless there it, significant investments by both the federal government and the provincial government in building new affordable housing, it's not going to get done. Developers aren't going to do it on their own. There's a lot of great developers out there who want to ensure 
people are housed and, and you know, it's fine to make a, a, a little bit of money on that as well. But um, there just aren't the incentives right now to ensure that uh, new affordable uh, and accessible rental accommodations are being built. And providing even more uh, tax breaks uh, to developers, I don't think is necessarily the way to go. What we really need to look at is is a major cash infusion in in creating new affordable housing. And the federal government's come out with their, a new national housing strategy, first one in, in 20 years. Um, but a lot of that money is back in loaded, so it's not going to start rolling out until 2020 and beyond. Yeah, and we had the minister on when he was in town making that announcement. And, and that was welcome news. We get that. But we were always anticipating, well, that will uh, dovetail nicely into what the province is going to do. Apparently nothing. At yeah. least not, they aren't saying anything anyway. I think what the province really could take a leadership uh, roll on, and, and maybe they've missed the opportunity in in this mini budget, but we still have the big budget coming up in the spring, I guess, is, is looking at portable housing allowances. And and that's ensuring that uh, people can afford to, uh, to live in perhaps market rental uh, apartments and and, and get a little bit of a subsidy for doing that. We know rents have been skyrocketing here in Hamilton, all over Ontario. Some of the um, some of the r- rationale uh, for putting rent controls on these uh, units, these new units in the first place, is because some of the uh, new condo developments in downtown Toronto and, and here in Hamilton as well uh, were renting for upwards of twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars for a one bedroom unit um, because there simply wasn't the available stock of rental housing available anywhere in that area. And, and people are spending 60, 70, 80% of their incomes on rent oftentimes. And it's also contracting the availability of other rental units. Um, so I don't think this is the right direction. I think we need to get a lot more serious about, about a massive investment in affordable housing in this province. One of the concerns, and I think Sandy Shaw touched on this when I was talking with her just a couple of minutes ago, is you wonder if the government's really got a handle on what some of the problems are. I mean, they're looking at numbers, and it's, that's easy. That, that's the low-hanging fruit to say, well, it's a big deficit. We have to do some cutting. But to have an understanding of what the housing market is doing right now. Yeah. And and one of the criticisms of this government, and I think there's some validity to this, is they very much seem to be Toronto-centric with a lot of the policies that they're developing right now. And Doug Ford's from Toronto, and now a lot of the cabinet ministers of that area. Uh, I, I don't know that they understand what's happening in Hamilton, what what's happening in Kingston, what's happening in Windsor. Yeah, yeah, and that, that may very well be true. The We've seen, I think, some priorities coming from this provincial government in the early days that, that are concerning. Uh, increasing tax cuts to uh, to some of the wealthiest uh, earners in, in this province, I, I, I think speaks to where their priorities may lie. Um, the, the fact that uh, we've seen here in Hamilton uh, the cancellation of the, of the Ontario Basic Income pilot project that was supposed to run for three years, that was having really a phenomenal impact on on local individuals, on a thousand people who were participating in that program, enabling them to stay in affordable housing so they didn't become homeless. Um, and and that program's going to be uh, canceled two years early in, in March. And unfortunately, we won't have the evidence to, to show us really if this could be the critical social policy we think it could be um, moving forward. There's another shoe to drop here, and that's going to be next week, we, we're told anyway. I mean, this was the, the mini budget, and that's in and of itself. 
But the other promise that uh, that the government made was uh, to reform the social service uh, file totally. And that's uh, under the guise, of course, of Lisa McLeod, who's the minister in charge of that portfolio. We're told that she's going to make an announcement about a policy change next week sometime. when we d- went through this in the past, it was, well, devastating, quite frankly, when the, there were massive cuts to social service funding. And, and, of course, we saw some of the results, increased food banks, et cetera. We know, we know that picture. That's been painted quite clearly for us over the last little while. Uh, what are you anticipating next week? Because th- that announcement is going to have a great impact on the people that are already impacted by what Mr. Fidelli said yesterday. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the there are 960,000 people in Ontario who rely on either Ontario Works or the Ontario Disability Support Program. Um, that's family members as well as as well as uh, individuals. And and so it's a huge, huge issue for this province. And we know people on social assistance are living in the deepest poverty in society. And you're absolutely right. Um, the the system hasn't been reformed adequately. We had some hope last year when there was a arm's length group that came together with a uh, plan to, to really increase rates and, and get rid of some of those dumb rules that we see in social assistance. Um, but that uh, that was thrown out. And Minister McLeod, uh, same time she announced the cancellation of the basic income pilot, said, I'm going to look at uh, reforming social assistance and I'll come back to you with a report in 100 days. Well, we're now at, I think, the 100 and 100 and 10-day mark, um, and we're expecting uh, expecting that report next week. We don't know what it'll say. Um, the government hasn't uh, consulted with us, maybe not surprisingly, but... Um, uh, but, that's, have, no, but that's part of the problem, and it goes back to what I was just saying a few minutes ago about not having a handle on what the real issues are. Yeah, yeah and I, my understanding is they haven't talked to municipalities either, which are the service delivery agents for Ontario Works, and, and you would think they would need to certainly be consulted and, and, and really providing feedback on, on what the future plans are going to be. Um, there, there's, some, uh, there's some concerns that the province may look at privatizing social assistance delivery, uh, which is what happens in the United Kingdom, and it is absolutely abhorrent. It's a, it's a broken system, and it really uh, leaves people falling right down into the uh, through the cracks and, uh, and and in very very desperate situations i hope we don't go down that route here in ontario um, but we do have some opportunities i think there is the roadmap for change which i think was a very good template i know the conservatives don't like it because it was it was brought forward by the previous liberal government but keep in mind it was an arm's length process so these weren't political insiders who came up with this report these were advocates and, and experts on social assistance reform, like our own Laura Katari here in Hamilton. And and that plan, I think, is bold, and it takes us into the 21st century. Right now, social assistance programs are stuck way back in the last century, not only in the woefully inadequate rates, but really in the, in some of those rules that just don't make sense these days. But it's, it's again, this pattern of, of no consultation. I, I guess they're talking to somebody, but I'm not quite sure who it is. And we, we saw that earlier this week when they rolled out their cannabis policy, about you know, where these stores are going to be allowed. They essentially took all the planning uh, power away from municipalities. Uh, and we're going to talk to some of the Hamilton councillors about that later on the show today. They're, they're getting very frustrated. Uh, they, they can't do radio separation. They can't, re- they, they can't even limit the number of stores that are going to be around. That's all been taken care of by the province. They just said basically hands off. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, this is top-down government, and it's a little frustrating. Yeah, and I, I don't think the public really likes that approach either. Even with the minimum wage 
increase and the changes to uh, Bill 148, which were, were some of the decent work uh, legislation that was brought in. Uh, a poll came out this week that showed 70% of Ontario residents disagree with the government on their direction around uh, minimum wage and sick days and a and, and number of the other um, things they've, they've cancelled uh, in, in Bill 148. People believe that if you work uh, and you're working hard, you should be compensated. You should, you know, that your job should have a value. And right now, people just aren't earning enough at their jobs. And, you know, it's fine for the government to think that they're going to uh, uh, lower taxes for, for some of the highest income earners in this province. But Ontario already has really, really low corporate tax rates, um, lower than most of the states in the United States. I think Alabama's maybe the only one with the, with a lower corporate tax rate. Uh, they're doing very well right now. It's the people at the bottom who are really challenged. They're, they can't afford their housing. They can't afford to get healthy food. They can't afford to pay their utilities. These are the folks we need to be looking out for as a government and as a society. Well, governments have been trying to do stuff to motivate businesses, et cetera, and we've, we, have, we know that. It goes all the way back. It doesn't matter what, what political party you're looking at here right now. But the reality here is that, as you say, if you don't look after those people, then they become a burden because they cost more. They know their health care costs go up. The ERs are still jammed up, et cetera, et cetera. We know all of these things. Uh, and, and these two policies that they scrapped just hours after they got elected, of course, the, the basic income program and, of course, the minimum wage, were advocated for by conservatives. I mean, what Doug Ford is doing is not a conservative policy. It's a Doug Ford policy yeah. because the, the two biggest advocates, for Hugh Siegel was one, yeah. uh, and the other was a report that came out three months ago that was actually authored by a, a guy that used to be one of the Stephen Harper revisers. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's those are conservatives that are saying this is what we need to do to strengthen our economy. And this government is simply saying, no, we don't believe that. Yeah, and, and it's unfortunate. And I, I think it, it's time that uh, we looked at a more collaborative approach. And, you know, there's been a bit of hyper-partisanism in this province for the last while. Uh, I, I think people are getting tired of it. I think they want to see real solutions. And uh, not just because a previous government that we don't like brought it in, but, you know, Ask the question, is this working for people? And if it is, let's find a way to continue it. Tom Cooper, uh, well, we'll talk, I'm sure, next week after uh, Minister McLeod issues her statement. Appreciate you coming in today. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very troubling story from Toronto. A uh, police investigation is underway at St. Michael's College School in Toronto after an alleged sexual assault that resulted in 10 students being suspended or expelled. But that's only part of the story. Uh, there's some more troubling news that uh, the police were not even made aware of this until somebody from the media asked them about it. Joe Warmington for the Toronto Senate has been following this story. He uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to try to shed some light on this. Joe, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. It's good to be with you. It's a um, very troubling story. And... Um I guess, you know, it's important that we wrestle it and see where it goes. Well, especially because we're getting so many contrary pieces of information here. Now, my understanding is, is it was actually somebody from the media that alerted police to this, uh, that the, the school did not contact police initially, yet uh, there's a letter, I'm told, that went out from the school principal that uh, that contradicts that. Yeah, what happened was that the the police were contacted about a different incident on Monday, and they were asked for advice about it. And it was dealt with, in essence, on the phone. There was no reason to send the car out. So I don't know what was said in that. We'll need to know what was said in that. And so 
you know, I have an open mind on this. Um, you know, we have to have a full probe into all sides of it. We need somebody in the middle. I suggest maybe former Premier Dalton McGinty, but somebody like that that could come in and sort this out because uh, this is very serious, very, very serious. And, um, you know, the, the thing about it in today's world, Bill, is social media, not, not that I've seen the video, but because I was busy with other things, but many people have. So you've got one of those situations where, you, you know, the, the guilt or the crime is kind of already in the minds of people's, uh, you know, they, they know what it, what it is as opposed to the opposite. Well, maybe we should just uh, go down that road a little bit. And I know that there's some very troubling details in what was alleged to have happened here, but essentially it was a hazing, was it not, Joe? Yeah, that's what I understand it. I have not seen the video, but many of my colleagues have. Now, you cannot look at it now, according to police, that would fall under the definition of child pornography. Uh, so if you have it on your phone or someone shares it, don't look at it or, or kill it. Uh, but, yeah, the before that was known, it was shown on TV and everywhere else. And, uh, and, and again, what it describes is, is these hazing stuff. I didn't think that was going on. That, that school is just su- such a good school for sports and for, for education. Uh, I always thought of it as a real, real tightly run ship. I'm really surprised that uh, that this is, you know, going on and has gone on. And now that we know that it has, and you know, we understand what's happening here, the fact that they didn't, uh, you know, allegedly tell police about it and tried to deal with it internally. Uh, now we need a full probe into everything about what goes on there in terms of, you know, the the culture and. And that, and let's find out what the facts are. Well, and and there's where we start to get into the gray area. And I'm glad you wrote the piece in the Sun today because it, it added some clarity and I think cleared up a, a few things for us. Because uh, there's still a lot of questions being asked here. And and again, I don't want to spend too much time about what's alleged to have happened, but there was at least one victim that we were told of, uh, and it it was pretty ugly. Anybody that's seen the video, I, I guess, is just disgusted by this. I had not seen it yet either, but I've certainly read a description uh, of it. You know, there's a TV show. Uh, it's another one of these things. The kids, you know, you, there's a TV show that has a similar thing. I'm told, and you know, it fits into that or falls into that narrative. But but the reality is that the, the crime is one thing, and the behavior of the students or children or what have even you know criminal people is another thing, and then. You know, there's the people that are responsible for these children. In light of the fact that the Catholic Church, this is you know run by the uh, Basilian Fathers, mm-hmm. not run by the Archdiocese, but it's a great school. It's a legendary school. Oh, Eastern sure. Eastern, and and and, it, and it, you know it still will be, but it's teetering on, you know this, and this is uh, once again we're seeing it. Like I I reached out to these guys. I mean I know of them all. Uh, great respect for Father there and at the school, and obviously Father Rizika. And I'm talking. Uh, about Father Thompson, Jeff Thompson, and uh, and Greg Reeves. I don't know if he's an alumnus. I think he might be, but but the reality is they run a super program there up until this incident, and you know, and then they're silent. You can't get them on the phone. They don't go before the cameras, and that's a mistake. I mean, whether you go get help with someone you know that knows how to spin things, or whether you just get out in front of it yourself. What I said to these guys in the email that I sent them is that, and I said it in the column today too, Bill is however it shakes out, whether it means, that, you know, I didn't say it in this words, but I you know, alluded to it, if it means that their jobs are gone out of this, I hope that's not the case. Um, so be it. Whatever, whatever the follow-up is, whatever is decided, needs to happen. Transparency now. We're dealing with children here. And, 
you know, uh, it needs a, a very fair look at it. Now, the people that are diving all over it, wanting to go one way or the other, I think that's a mistake, too. I think we need to to see exactly what, you know, what did happen and what the culture is. Well, they've got to say something here. I mean, at some point, there's there's got to be, uh, you know, some... I don't know we're going to have a media conference or what. I mean, I, I, they may be afraid of the questions, but I mean, I again, the, the two that I had right off the top of my head, Joe, is how could they not have seen this video and, and understood that there was a crime committed here? I mean, this was not just a bunch of guys being a little bit crazy. This this was criminal. Absolutely, and, and, and you know, one police officer told me that, that this kind of thing has been people have been charged with attempted murder and murder out of it before because it's uh, very serious. Uh, you know, you can bleed internally and everything else. So uh, this is not funny. Look, at I I think by the end of the day we'll have some clarity on this. I mean, I'd like to see the principal and and the uh, you know the supervising uh, father uh, to come out in front of the media and address it one way or the other. Either call in a third party to investigate it independently, and they should step away from it, or you know at least for now. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And then I think they need to be clearer, too, about the students and which ones have been suspended, which ones have been expelled, and if that's fair, because they're all going to get lawyers, too. This is a this is a royal mess. This is bad. Are, what are police doing? Are they investigating this incident now? Yeah, they've got the youth uh, uh, group that, that does this kind of thing, okay. a professional yeah. outfit that's the right people for it. Uh, their first focus is obviously on the students and on the on the victims. And, you know, they'll put together a, a professional case uh, of what did transpire here. There's big discrepancies and, and also, you know, debate between the police and the school about who did what and when did they call. You don't see that very often. Uh, the police are out front on that. The one thing I know what I've learned about police in my time covering them that they resent is when there's something that's happening that's clearly you know, allegedly criminal or, or whatever, and they're not called. They get criticized for not going to things and, you know, enough staff for that, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yet they don't like it when they're behind the eight ball and something that's happening, and especially if they're lied to. I'm not saying that happened here. But there was something that happened Monday, the call. And, you know, they didn't have, have all the information. That's what they claim. Um, and so, you know, you don't mess around with stuff like that. It's, especially when you're dealing with young children, and uh, that's what this is. Well, and, and my concern here, I, obviously the victims have to you know, be attended to. We understand that. And, and there's, it's, it's a delicate matter for a whole lot of reasons, not, none the least of which, in fact, is I don't know, uh, you know who these kids are, but it, I'm sure some of them are minors, and if not all of them. And, of course, uh, then you've got a problem with publication bans, and you, know, you don't want to splatter those names all over the place. I, I get that. And, and if I were a parent whose kid would go to the school, I'd have those same sorts of concerns. I understand that. But I'm, well, their I'm, futures are all, all their futures are... are are paramount to this. Yeah, all of them. Uh, everybody involved in this. They're all, uh, from what I understand, they're all under. You know, they're all under eighteen. They're considered youth, and so that's probably, I think, in the spirit of. I, I'd like to think that that's in the spirit of why St. Mike's has taken this approach, which is to handle it internally. The problem is that Bill, with you know the, the Catholic Church's history of handling things internally, uh, their own policies don't allow for that. Uh, this is not run by the Archdiocese. If it was, I guarantee you that the uh, Cardinal would be speaking out on it, and I think everybody would be, you know, uh, not not in a you know a, like a hard way suspended, but they would all be 
removed and there would be a third party in there, a guy like Adult McGinty, former Premier. That's what it's going to take to go in and say, okay, we're starting from the beginning here. The police investigation will run parallel to that because that's important. Uh, and I may even delve into this. But right now, for the integrity of the school, uh, because of the way this wasn't or was, uh, you know, reported to police, uh, that has to happen. And then, obviously, the future of the, the kids, uh, you said it best, we don't want their names, we don't want people's reputations tarnished, and we don't want them ruined for one mistake either. Um, you know, if that's what this was, uh, you know, we don't know. If this was a pattern of things, that's a different issue. But um, so this is a, this is a big thing, and, um, you know, it's, it is troubling. Uh, I didn't think I'd ever see it at St. Michael's, I'll tell you that. The, the administration have got some questions to, to answer here as well. And, uh, you know, as we talked about, they saw the video. I mean, it was reported. And so there were eyes on that video. And yet the, you have to ask, why did you not call police when you saw that video? Uh, and and w- who were you protecting? Were you pr- trying to protect the kids or was it the reputation of the school? That's what we need to find out. And and I don't even know if it matters what their excuse is. I, I really don't. Yeah, I, think that, uh, I think this is, uh, you know, I... I'm trying to hold my words here because I want to be fair, but uh, you know I don't have all the information. I'm trying to get it. If anybody knows anything, uh, feel free to call me or Bill yourself. Uh, yeah, and then we'll uh, we'll get to the bottom. We're going to do this fairly. We're not going to do this in an unprofessional way. There's been enough of that already. Well, you've handled uh, you've handled st- things like this in the past, Joe, and that's why yeah. the piece today was uh, it was it was it was done properly. I mean, it was. It was informative, but at the same time, you're not rushing to judgment here, and I don't think anybody should at this stage because that's not your style. You don't do that, but you do need uh, to get information here, and and it doesn't. It's not forthcoming, and maybe there are simple explanations for it. I don't know, uh, and the, it, that's the whole problem. In the absence of any information like this, comes speculation, and that's only going to make this worse. You know, for those that are listening in in sports, uh, hockey, and all the other sports. You know, this this initiation rituals, hazing and bullying and all that is is not part of, you know, the new millennium, if you will. And so the kids, uh, you know, the parents of kids or kids, if you see it, you see somebody with their their eyebrows shaved or their head, you know, hair cut off and all that stuff, that is not appropriate in today's climate. When I played hockey, that's how, how it went. It's not okay. And uh, the, the very fact that, this happened once or more because I've we've talked to people who say that this is this goes on there. In fact, Dave Trafford was on uh, here in Toronto on Radio on Ten Ten today, and he's involved with the school, and he said that it was common to see kids with their heads shaved if they made one of the teams uh, at St. Mike's. I'm talking hockey now. Yeah. Uh, so that right there, uh, to me, indicates the opening of the door to the issues that we perhaps have got to hear the fact that that was a tolerated or not known about or whatever but that is the first thing that we need to get across the board i you agree with me i mean i i think you know that's why i'm saying it now it's almost like a public service um you know if, if the kids you don't have to put up with that and it's not acceptable 
Well, Joe, uh, you remember a few years ago, there was a Canadian uh, regiment, over, I think you were over in Europe, and a video was released of a hazing that they, they were going through at the time. And then the military got involved in this in a big way. I mean, there were court-martials issued, and, and basically they said that's not allowed anymore in, in, the, in the military, in the Canadian Armed Forces. We do not tolerate that. You would think that schools, high schools especially, would have the same sort of policy. I think that the, you know, if you talk to the Tiger Cats, I'm pretty sure that they have a rule. It's probably on their website. I know the Argos have it, where they don't have that uh, for rookies anymore. I know that most of the NHL teams have policies on this. I'm yeah. sure St. Michael's has policies on this. This, uh, you know, this is a very dark subject. But I think, you know, and I'm glad you said. I appreciate what you said because that's the way you're handling this here today as well. This happened, and there are issues with it. But as responsible people, uh, now what we need to do is to get to the bottom of it and prevent it and, and, and obviously look, tend to the victims and look for the justice that's necessary or that's needed and, and just do it that way. And it's teetering on, and I use that term already, but it is kind of like the teeter to totter. Is it going to go that way or is it going to be full, uh, you know, circle of wagons, if you will, and... Uh, you know, us and them. We'll see. Uh, we're right there at that point. We'll know today. And, you know, and so with the alumni that I know there, I think that there's a good chance you're going to see this thing put, you know, in a transparent way in front of the public today. Um, and that will be part of, hopefully, even during your show here. Well, you can talk about it. yeah, there's got to be some kind of a discussion also about policy at the school and, and probably other schools. I mean, let's not be naive and think that that's, this only happens at St. Mike's. I'm sure it goes on in other facilities, too. And this, if nothing else, in your piece in the sun today, Joe, I, I think is going to shine the light on that. And maybe it's time to have a discussion about, about changing policies. I've seen it before. I've covered these things before. And, you know, every time you deal with one and you think that you've moved along to the next phase, there's another one. And I'm not just talking about hazing, I'm talking about the whole area of, you know, trust and, and the teachers and coaches and all of that. Um, you know, this is not falling into that category at this time, but there are teachers, there are coaches, there are administrators, there's clergy and, and all of that in a very, very big way, in a very disciplined uh, environment at St. Michael's College School, and this did happen under that watch. And the number one, you know, uh, concern you would think would be to the college to find out why the hell that happened. Well, that's one of the questions we need answered. Uh, we'll certainly be following. I uh, hope we get some information about this later today, Joe. Great piece in the sun today. Thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again. Hey, by, by the way, did anybody see the Gordon Lightfoot show last night? Um, I, I was not. I, I did not. I was otherwise occupied. But, uh, hey, it's Gordon Lightfoot. Of course it was fabulous. You know that. Well, say his, his 80th birthday is tomorrow. Yeah. And I'm on my way over to see uh, Gord uh, in Oshawa. I was going to come to the Hamilton... Uh, place yesterday to see him at Soundcheck, but I was so busy with the St. Michael story and the weather issues, too, and all that. Yeah, that exactly. It. So I'm going to meet him over in Oshawa. Well, I'm going to write a piece for uh, for Saturday uh, with Gordy. So uh, if anybody's in Hamilton, I know you got to go, but anybody that was at the show wants to share some of it with me, uh, Joe Warmington at postmedia.com. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks again, Joe. We'll look forward to the piece of the, uh, this weekend.
All the best. Take Thank care. You. Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.